Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesanov. Now, as everybody knows, London Heal is all about health, longevity, living long and healthy for as long as possible. And of course, we all know that the best place to start that is in the very beginning, in the early, early years. And that's why it's my particular delight today to invite as my guest and welcome as my guest, Nicole Pisani. Nicole is a trained chef. She grew up in the beautiful island of Malta. I never understand why anybody would leave a place like that. <laughs> so delightful. And um, took a, a wonderful uh, tour through her career and ended up quite recently as the head chef of one of the leading London restaurants, Nopi. However, she threw that career to a sense to one side in view of doing something which so many of us should do, and that's working for the greater good. And that's why I'm so excited to speak to Nicole today, because I think what she's doing is just amazing. So first of all, Nicole, welcome. Thank you, Tatiana. So nice to be on London Hill. Um, and as you said, London is one of the crazy places in the world. So I think is. having a pod podcast like this is good, because you do have that um, hour where you're, you can step into another world and hopefully heal for an hour and heal from the busy, busy life of London. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's our goal. <laughs> Nicole, you embarked, as I said, you, you were working as a head chef for one of London's best restaurants and you decided to step away from that. The story I want to leave you to tell because I think it's a brilliant story. So why don't you tell us what happened? Um, I I was very lucky and I got given the role of head chef. Um, now it's actually six years ago in one of the leading restaurants in London um, it, by a great chef who I admire, uh, Yota Motolini. And <clears throat> I um, did this wholeheartedly for two years with all the love and strength that a person can have with a job. But unfortunately, I think a work-life balance seemed to not, with uh, working weekends and working through the Christmas periods, and, you know, this is part of the restaurant world, but unfortunately, <clears throat> I seemed to come to a point in my life where I started to feel I wanted to do something that was for the greater good, something that I could feel that I was giving rather than, you know, being part of a big machine um of uh, yeah big big london machine as we were saying originally mm -hmm. so i didn't know exactly what i wanted to do but i knew that i needed a change so i for the first time i think in a very long time i listened to my gut feelings and i resigned um and i had no idea what i wanted to do but i said i needed to um find my way and that in my head was a glamorous uh, year of going around India or going around, you know, Thailand. But it actually ended up being a week of being off and starting a job straight away in a school in Hackney. Um, I answered a tweet by Henry Dimbleby, who wrote the school food plan. And the tweet was to be a chef in his children's school, which was Gayhurst Primary School. Um, I didn't understand the implications of what it meant, but I thought, 
you know, feeding children was quite high on my list of, you know, wanting to pay it forward with something that I had, you know, specialized or done for such a long time. So straight away I said yes. And as soon as I actually arrived at Gayhurst, I realized that this was so much more than having a nine to five. And there was so much that you could do with regards to food and the whole school culture, which is just teaching kids where food actually comes from. So I guess from the first day of me going to Gayhurst, a bit of Chefs and Scores was born because with the charity, um, we try and not only change what children eat, but also teach them about food through the curriculum. So I guess that's the background story of how Chefs and Scores came into place. But now uh, a year so a year ago, we founded the charity. Uh, the co-founders of the charity are Henry Dimbleby and Louise Nichols, who's the exec teacher of Leap Federation. And we actually have a small, marvelous team of four people. We have our CEO, Naomi Duncan, we have our campaigns and content um, person named Danielle and our fundraiser named Polly. And we have Joe Weinberg, who has been since the beginning, who we always laugh, has various titles, but is fundamental, to, well, is a part of the backbone of Chefs and Scores. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's just take it back a little bit I think that's amazing you know I, I love people who do that it's such a huge step to take to actually suddenly wake up one day and say you know what this life I've li I'm living is it's not the right life and so many of us don't listen to that instinct because we're you know we listen to our minds which say we have to pay the mortgage we have to pay the bills we have to do this it's too much risk but great things happen when you do listen to that inner voice and you're one of the fortunate ones perhaps that can do that if you're a little bit more free and independent. And I think it's marvellous because you've landed in a fundamentally important role with what you're doing. Um, I'd like to kind of go back and unpack that a little bit more. So what was the reason for Henry Dimbleby to even put that tweet out? You know, why was he looking in the world of tweet for a chef for his children's schools? It seems like an absurd thing to do. <laughs> so Henry Dimbleby is also the governor at Gayhurst and right. their head chef had left. So they were looking for a head chef to take on the role of a head chef at, at the school. What then ended up um, by being was that the role now, the job description for any head chef within chefs and schools is head chef and food educator. So what originally was the standard school chef um, yeah, job description is now slightly more because we learned through experience that if you want you know, to engage with the kids and actually have organic change, you know, not change that's going to happen quite fast, but isn't sustainable, that change, which is slow, but actually that you see slowly reaping effects. And that is only with the education that we did start to see organic, sustainable growth within the school. Wonderful. And 
And is that part of the private school system or or is it more, um, you know, open school, state school? It's all state schools. Oh, so um, and so far, so in the last year, so originally it was just uh, so Gayhurst is part of a federation mm-hmm. of three other schools. And originally it was just the three other schools where we tried the different models Um each school has their own kitchen team and each team, I guess, like, you know, restaurant kitchens as well. Like you can't have one model that fits everything. So with uh, doing the different leap federation schools, we tried out different models and we found out, you know, what works well with the upskilling of the staff, which is fundamental because, you know, it's winning, you know, the team making sure that the team are on board with the changes and again you know it's a holistic change you're changing you know the culture within a school it's changing you know what not only what children eat but the conversation around food and making food part of the daily um daily language and the the actual day um but yeah going back to the um currently we're now in 20 schools around london and like I, I said originally, it's just making sure that the schools are sustainable and that the kitchens can stand on their own two feet and the teams that we upskill can actually, you know, do the job without, um, so, yeah, I mean, manage and serve and teach about food and actually love what they do. I think that's fundamental is, you know, raising the profile of the school chef and, understanding that with respect you know it's a job that needs to be treated as part of the school day and as important as anybody else in the school right I think traditionally British school dinners have uh, have not a particularly good reputation I remember (laughs) having to endure that myself and you know I think it was every Wednesday you would you would get you know jelly um, in a bowl which had definitely been served up several times before because there were times (laughs) where you almost had to blow the dust off the top Um, I mean it was I don't think I've ever heard that story it was was, we're, we're talking 35 years ago but it was it was dreadful I mean to the point where I actually at one point had to ask my parents to write me a note so that I didn't have to eat the school food because it was just you know I come from a Mediterranean background too so I grew up eating wonderfully healthy food and then had to eat this muck I mean it was absolutely indigestible and I remember being totally horrified even at that stage and it was a standing joke and I know I mean everybody knows and I'm sure many people have heard you're not the first who have tried to instigate this change. Um, people like Jamie Oliver, I think, are also well known for trying to create changes in schools. I mean, he he had a modicum of success, but it's certainly the project I don't think went as far as he would have liked. Um, what do you think is different about your approach and what's, what's going to make that work and make the difference? I think what we always say is that there's a huge amount of people out there, you know, doing the same thing, trying, you know, to change what food we serve our kids. So for us, it was more about um, our slogan, better is possible, rather than, you know, thinking that we were the only, you know, there's so many good charities out there. You know, Jamie Oliver's new charity, Bike Back 2000, 
uh, and 30, which, you know, once again is focusing on what we're feeding our children. And I guess it's when you think what's the bottom line to what we're all doing and it's we do this because of the children, you know, and I think the difference there, there isn't really a difference. It's just saying that, you know, we can do better. And I mean, I, I haven't heard the jelly story, um, which is <laughs> yeah, quite, see, that was pretty... quite refreshing. Because <laughs> um, I do hear, you know, stories of putting peas in the pockets. And to be fair, I think now I've spent the last six years hearing about what people ate at school. And as you know, I mean, in Malta, we went home for lunch and then went back to school. So we didn't have school dinners. But um, I guess it's just saying that we can provide, you know, food that's made from scratch and made with love. And we can, you know, provide something that, you know, yesterday I was at a conference and I think someone pointed out something which is fundamental and so true that if you're going to eat it, if you're not going to eat it, then why would you serve it to a child? And, you know, and I, I think we forget this as a basic, you know, if, if it's not flavored and it's not seasoned properly and it doesn't taste nice and you yourself won't eat it, then what? Yes. Again, why, why would you serve it to someone else, especially a child who is forming a relationship with food at that fundamental age? Um, and once again, I guess there's, you know, school food matters. There's so many charities that are doing the same thing I think the difference now is that we're trying to create a platform where we're all campaigning around the same thing at the same time because I think the more energy or the more voice we have the more this would actually succeed and we can have good school food for kids around the UK right I, I love what you said there about uh, about re- starting this relationship that children have with food. Um, I re- I remember looking at my cat um, when when I got my kitten. He had been he was already eight months old because due to various circumstances I couldn't take him straight away, and he'd already been fed these kind of hard kibble by by his uh, the person that bred the cats. And so by the time I got him, he point blank to this day, 13 years later, refuses to eat any kind of tinned cat food. He will only eat this this horrible dried stuff, uh, despite all of my efforts to the contrary. And it made me realize then that that certainly in the animal kingdom, and I think the same is true for grown-ups, that I mean for humans, that these very, very early interactions that you have with food set the pattern for what you eat an absolute lifelong so I think what you're doing is really crucial because you're you're bringing that in at such an early age so how young are the children that you work with are they are they sort of like really at the junior school level very young so yes we feed in most of our schools we feed nursery and reception which are between the ages yeah so four upwards but once again, agreeing with what, with what you said is that, you know, for me, a, a simple example, but we never had, we always got served whole fish on the bone. And we knew that that's, that, that was how it came. Like there was no other way but to see it in its true form. And I guess nowadays when you ask kids, you know, 
where does salt come from? And the answer is McDonald's or, <laughs> you know, what shape does a fish have? And the answer is square with breadcrumbs. You know, we think this is, you know, where we need to make sure that we are back in touch with the food that we eat because that is only going to make us healthier. You know, I started to do work. We started to do work in secondary schools and we, a friend of mine who's, a nutritionist did a talk with teenagers and started the talk off by saying medicine or poison the choice is yours and you know it it also hit me quite hard because it's like yes this is exactly you know the relationship that you form with food at a very young age it could be your medicine you could cure yourself you know if you look at why you're not sleeping and you you know, have a bit more kale, you know, you start to sleep better. So we can cure our bodies if we listen to what they're saying with food. But the flip side to that is that if we eat too much salt and too much sugar and, you know, we're not balancing what we eat, then it is our poison, you know, 20 years down the line. And I guess when you just take something as simple as that and then you understand at the moment you know, most of our schools are doing cooking lessons with the children across the week. And simple lessons like crudités with a dip as snack, you know, which they thoroughly enjoy doing. I mean, I can't, you know, yesterday we did a yogurt, we did a tzatziki. And I, I always, six years down the line, I'm still impressed with how much they love grating. You know, they can grate for 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, but you're teaching them to do something like a tzatziki dip, you know, which is very simple, but it's a snack and it's not, you know, tapping into the beige, you know, the, the processed sugary fatty food, which, you know, we're not saying is wrong, but we're just trying to provide the knowledge to make the right choices and to have a balance with what we put in our bodies. Absolutely. I think it definitely is wrong, by the way, but still. <laughs> um, you, you talked a lot about the ed educational component, which is huge. So, I mean, not only do these children have the luxury of sitting down and eating and enjoying good food, but they're also taught about it and engage in it. How does that actually work? So is this just part of the standard, you know, home economics um, curriculum of the schools or is something particularly set up? to be able to give the opportunity, a platform to engage the children educationally? So with the school food plan, the cooking curriculum uh, is mandatory. And this is what I guess is, you know, currently trying. And um, so this is what schools are currently trying to do. In, in fact, which is to link the cooking curriculum, uh, to have a cooking curriculum, but with uh, chefs and schools, we say we try and link, you know, the growing with the curriculum, with the menu. So if children are pulling out carrots from the ground, then the next day they're having a carrot soup, you know, and, and linking to, you know, produce versus menu versus learning how to make the soup themselves. With um, most primary schools, um, have amazing, you know, TAs, a lot of the um, staff in the schools providing the cooking lessons. But, you know, 
sometimes it's met with the problem of space. Sometimes it's met with the problem of time. Um, so what we're trying to do in Hackney is build the Hackney School of Food, which will be solely dedicated to kids in Hackney or anywhere, really, um, to come and have a day uh, at the school, which would entail, which would be um, we have a growing um, bit of the school, which would mean that the kids can once again see how food grows, prep it, eat it, and sh share it. Um, which I think is one of the things that, as chefs in schools, is important uh, to us as well is the sharing of food and you know the eating together at the table. Um, with a lot of the, the schools, we try and put salads on the tables. And not only is this to promote, you know, to engage the children visually, it's also to get the kids to value, you know, sharing food and actually sitting down and enjoying, you know, instead of uh, playing with your computer or your phone while eating, you know, the value of <laughs> eating together once again, which is, you know, something very important because we realize with with our journey that it's not only what we fed the kids, but it was also uh, helping the dining hall and, you know, the ambience in which they ate and providing, you know, a safe space where they're not being rushed or, you know, we try and be less authoritarian around them eating their food. I think when a child is left to pick their own food and have um, control over what gets put on their plate, they're more likely to eat it. Um, another big conversation that we've had recently was portion control on how, you know, less is actually more. Um, and by putting the right amount of food on a child's plate encourages a child to try things that they wouldn't normally try. Whereas, you know, the idea of feeding sometimes is misinterpreted because, you know, kids get really big portions, but we need to understand that that actually is a bit a part, part of the problem rather than, you know, helping the solution. Right. Right. Yeah, I love that. I think the idea of eating in community is is huge and something that's gone really missing from from our culture. I mean, there are so many families where, you know, from the from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed, they're just rushing. Um, they eat on the go, you know, walking down the street or whatever. There's the sandwich in the hand and there's never this sense of sitting down and sharing food. And I think that word sharing is really important because that's part of the experience, isn't it? Is to prepare the food together, to share it with, an, uh, with each other and to enjoy eating it. And that's something which I think is, is sadly disappearing from, from our culture. And I think it's a, a huge point because I think it teaches on so many levels, not, not just on the nutritional level. Speaking about nutrition, what, what are the nutritional bases for, for your meal plans and your diets? I mean, in the world of, of nutrition these days, there's so much conflicting information about what is good for you, what isn't good for you. But I think there are a few basic rules. So what are the sort of things that you adhere to to give children healthy food options? I mean, we, we follow the school food plan quite diligently, and that is a guideline it's just a guideline of, um, you know, an eat well plate. 
i.e., you know, how much carbohydrates versus how much protein versus, you know, how much veg you need to put on a child's plate. Um, and I guess uh, having that as a tool, but also instinctively, you know, if we're putting passionate people into kitchens, they're automatically, you know, wanting to cook, you know, vegetables um, at the right consistency. And there is a certain amount of skill that goes into making sure that we do provide the nutritional value that we need to be providing. And that's something as simple as, you know, when you boil veg for an hour, um, all the nutrition has been taken out of it. Whereas if you boil broccoli for six minutes, blanch it, sorry, refresh it and then bring it up to temperature again, you're locking all those nutrients into that one piece of broccoli. So I guess this is where we would say that, you know, nutritionally, we're trying every day to learn and to better what we give kids. Um, we spend quite a lot of our time in the dining hall, standing near the rubbish bins, which is the point of contact with any child coming you know, after they've finished their meal. And that is where we engage and have a conversation around, can you try a bit more of this? Can you have a bit more of this? You know, you've eaten all your broccoli. Can I get you some more? Um, and I guess that's quite key with what we try and do with chefs and schools is that we say it's um, not only fundamental to make sure the menu's planned very well, but also to make sure that that planning of the menu is what the kids are actually eating. You know, and that's, I guess, it's ongoing. Um, I was at Gayhurst for five years and I always say you never reach a, a point at which you think, oh, oh my God, we've nailed what the kids should be eating and what they are actually eating. You know, I always joke that, you know, that you'd give them cucumber on Tuesday and they'd eat you know, a good five boxes of it. And then Wednesday, they'll be like, I'm not eating it. And you're like, oh my God, you've just ate. You know, and this, these are kids, children in general, I guess they're, you know, wanting to experiment with their palates and, you know, everything, I guess, is new. Um, and that's amazing. But also for a chef, I think <laughs> it is, um, especially when I think you kind of, want to arrive at a place where you're like right this is the menu you know this works but to be fair um we're constantly learning and we're constantly trying to better what we do yeah children have always got something up their sleeves that's going to throw your plan out of whack that's just the way <laughs> kids are <laughs> that's also the joy of them isn't it and the joy of being involved in in this such early age where you can really you know, help form and create their their uh, nutrition choices for the future. I I think that's amazing. And and how does it? How well is it accepted by the kids and and also by the staff and the knock on effects at home? I'd I'd love to know that. Are you starting to see that? Because I mean, it's fine if you give your child at least one healthy meal a day 
at school, but if they go home and that information then literally gets left at the school gate, that doesn't help. Are you, what, what's your observation about how this is being adopted by the children, the st other staff members, and also at home? So we, we try and make this um, so that we try and engage, you know, parents as much as possible. And this stems from things like talking to parents uh, at Parents' Day about what their kids like and don't like to eat. Um, we do parent tasting sessions. We do parent and uh, children and parental carer uh, cooking classes. You know, some of the schools, LDBS, have started to do come dine with me where the parents come into the schools and, you know, have taste what the kids are cooking. So there's a lot of incorporation with um, trying to incorporate you know, the parents and the community in what, you know, the school is trying to do. And I think it's only proven to be positive because, you know, without wanting to tell people how or what, what to eat, I think in engaging um, parents and providing the knowledge of what the children are eating and that, you know, when... When a parent, I, I guess, leaves their child at the school gate, it could be quite scary for both the child and the parent. Right. So for the parent to know that the child's being taken care of and getting a good warm meal, I think is, is fundamental with um, winning the parents and having the parents on board with, with what the school is trying to do. Um, with chefs and schools, we've... Uh, we have our school food charter, which we ask uh, any school to download and sign. And that has a few things which we think are important with regards to food, the environment, the culture. Um, and I guess it's also key, just some, something as fundamental as having the conversation you know, of what what we provide our kids when we uh, set them off into the school at the gate. Like, what are they, you know, are we giving them powdered milk? Are we giving them fresh custard? Are we giving them, you know, are they sitting down and eating on plates? You know, are they drinking water? Um, and these are all parts of the school food charter, which we um, are asking schools, head teachers, parents, uh, school chefs to download, read, and sign. Perfect, perfect. What about all of the other temptations? Um, I mean, you can control the meal times, but um, I, I don't actually know what it's like in UK schools. It's been a long time since I was in the UK system. <laughs> actually, it's also been a while since my daughter was in it. Um, but what about things like, you know, vending machines and snack machines or the stuff that the kids bring with them? Is that, you know, is do you see problems there? Like, you know, no, maybe instead of eating all of those chocolate biscuits or packet of crisps or something, you might want to try this. Is the availability of, of non-healthy food also still an issue? I mean, one, once again, you know, we're constantly learning and going from primary school to secondary school was a huge learning curve for us within chefs and schools. And I guess something that is as obvious as uh, taking 
away something from a teenager or a child and replacing it with what you think is the better option is not the way to go. Uh, no, that's <laughs> <It's>, resistance <laughs> absolutely immediately. <laughs> I mean, exactly. So as soon as you do that, then, you know, you've lost the, any, any way in, basically, because there's, there's um, no way that you can tell a teenager, this is what we want you to eat. So what we started to do, so uh, leads into your question, we're not taking away the, you know, what they were currently having in schools we're just making um making them feel that the choice is theirs so with um one of our secondary schools we had um in the beginning when we started we had the canteen still serving what the school originally served and what we called the street shack which was the hub Uh, or a service point that the school had outside, we took that and started to serve what we call the street food element, which is also in a secondary school, the grab and go, which (laughs) means that kids, you know, are grabbing it and eating, which to be fair is how I guess we all eat nowadays. So it was things like, you know, uh, lamb tacos, kebabs, Uh, chicken lollipops with corn salad you know things where they don't need to sit down and eat but also that is made from fresh well made from scratch made with really good produce um, and you know there's always the veg or the salad accompaniment to all the dishes as well but it's making it very much comparable to the high streets. You know, Mm -hmm. it's what the kids would eat if they were outside, you know, but once again, making it on site means that, you know, it's normally made with two or three fresh ingredients rather than, you know, with things that aren't good for our bodies. So I guess that's where we learned the biggest lesson was not to take away, you know, I mean, We've never been in a school where they had a vending machine, but if they did, then we wouldn't take away the vending machine. We'd just try and focus on the things that we were doing, which we wanted the kids to eat. Um, And it it worked. Um, The school now has a queuing problem (laughs) because the kids are queuing. um, The queues are getting slightly unmanageable because the kids want the food so it's it's worked it's once again you know it's one of those things that take time it's not in, instant you know we don't you don't go into a school and automatically change from what you know they are they were eating to what you would like them to eat you know it, it's a journey that they have to take on um along with the kitchen team the school and you know all the school staff. Um, so yes, I guess um, my uh, number one bit of advice is, uh, mind you, say I was going to say is uh, never take away the ketchup. But another school <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually um, the kids love. They make a home a school made ketchup, and the kids love it. Um, but once again, I think it took a year to get the kids uh, away from, you know, the brought-in ketchup into liking the school-made ketchup. But, (laughs) um, yeah. 
So how does how does a school get involved in this program? I mean, is that oftentimes do you go looking for other schools or can the schools get in touch with Sheffield schools, the charity and I know, or can it be initiated by by parents, for example? What's the process? It, it can be. So we we like we love people to get in touch and we say, you know, if you're a parent, if you're a governor, if you're a head teacher, if you're a school chef. If you're a student in the school, just write an email and um, or go to our website, which is chefsandschools.org.uk. Um, but yes, I guess um, with regards to school programs, we're currently, um, like I said in the beginning, we realized that not one model fitted uh, every school. So we have now a few different training models. We have the whole school approach transformation, which is uh, putting a head chef in a school and training the existing team. We also have the training program, which is uh, training the head chef that they would have already in the kitchen. Um, and we also are doing different modules from our chef's pack. So we're doing cooking curriculums in schools along with a head chef of the school um, so there are different models and different ways in which we are engaging with schools and that schools can contact us if they want you know in any way to look at the relationship that the children have with food in their school wonderful and you said at the very beginning I think you have 20 20 schools on board at the moment we're currently yes at 20 I think 22 by December. Great. So what's what's the plan looking like? What are the uh, what are the goals and the aims for the next couple of years? I think um, the one of the main goals that we have which we keep on talking about is taking the model outside of London and you know trialing it in places like Birmingham or Hastings where you know the uh, universal preschool meals and free school meals numbers are quite high um, and I guess yes that that would be the initial first thing that we would think that we would want to do but also I, I think just to keep you know the momentum of what we're saying and what we're doing and to keep you know quite um, true to our values which are, you know, to make sure that we are upskilling the teams, to make sure that we are doing cooking lessons uh, in schools, to make sure that, you know, we're not cutting corners and we're providing the best meal that we could provide for that day. Um, and I guess that's quite fundamental is that, you know, the more time, the, the more we grow, the more we keep true to what we set out to do originally. Right, right. I think one of the main criticisms that you often hear against eating well is time and money. Um, people yes. will say things like, it's just much cheaper to spend a pound on a McDonald's than it is to go and buy organic produce. And besides which McDonald's I can buy in two minutes, whereas something else is going to take time. In an organization like a school where obviously funding is controlled and restricted, how, how do you actually sort that out? Is there a, does the charity top up or how does it work? Because I can imagine financial restrictions and time restrictions are not insignificant in a school environment. I mean, I, I always um, 
I, I mean, I've been cooking now for the last 20 years. And, you know, for me to know that, you know, buying a cabbage, buying a cauliflower, buying a packet of dried, you know, chickpeas or bellotti beans or a packet of dried rice, like how many meals you can make out of something like that if, you know, you're not resorting to, you know, buying food, you know, on, on the instantly. So, you know, if, if you're planning your menus and, you know, you're understanding that, you know, you can batch cook, um, I think people underestimate how cheap, you know, something, a meal that is cauliflower, rice, you know, and a dal, which is, you know, some for me, it's one of my favorite meals and it costs near to nothing. And I guess it's the same ethos in a school when you understand that, you know, the, the, the skilling of the team is what's necessary. But when you have the power in, you know, skilling someone to make bread, you know, we did an exercise where it cost us 160 pounds to buy bread in, uh, in a school to feed 500. And it cost us 40 pounds, including staff costs you know, to make exactly the same amount of bread. Um, and that's what we're looking at, that with a team where you have skill and, you know, they're making beautiful curries and they're making breads and they're making, you know, the nans and they're making pizza from scratch and they're, you know, making lamb koftas. Like, it's going to be cheaper, but it's going to cost the school the same amount of money. But the profits are going back into the team. You know, you're, you're investing and skilling and paying, you know, paying London. We're, part of our chefs and schools, uh, school food charter is that you'd pay, you know, in London, the London living wage, you know, which we believe is, is fair. So you are you're using the same um, amount of money, but you're investing it in good produce and in a good team of people to make the food. Sounds amazing. Gosh, I'm getting hungry now. <laughs> Where do you see your role in the, in the future in this organization? You're, you're not cooking at Gayhurst anymore full time. So now you've stepped into to the, the charity work. Where, where does it go for you personally from here? I, um, I always joke that um, I always try and think, well, I, I want to believe that I love change. You know, and I'm uh, fluid and easily can, um, you know, live anywhere and go traveling. But uh, funnily enough, I've realized that I find change quite hard. And for me to go from working, you know, in the kitchen and being hands on and managing, you know, from in the middle of the kitchen, i.e., you know, being part of the team to actually, you know, having office days and sitting down on a chair for eight hours um I, I found I found transformation quite hard um and to manage from afar rather than you know in the center of the heart of the kitchen um so I think this I'm currently feel that I've adapted quite quite well and I'd like to believe now that I'm uh office orientated as much as kitchen orientated so um I'm not sure what the next step is because I'm quite quite happy staying um, quite put with um, the recent changes, at least for the next year or so. 
Lovely. One thing I was um, thinking about when you when you spoke about it earlier was this idea of also producing the food. I mean, I think coming from very many different angles is a is a drive in a lot of cities to actually produce food, whether it's, you know, these rooftop gardens or, you know, on on schools and things. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect of it? Because I find that really interesting. Because I have to admit, as a kid, I was lucky enough to grow up with a garden. And I was out there every weekend. It was, it was an enjoyable experience to spend time with my father and watch things grow. And there was nothing so rewarding as picking the first pea out of the pod. And they tasted so amazing. Um, how, does, how does that actually look in, in an inner city setting like London? Um. So I think what's happening, like the beauty of the changes that are happening at the moment in the world that we're living in is that we are looking inwards and we are looking at, you know, head teachers are looking at the spaces they have, even in, you know, schools where you think that, you know, there isn't a lot of outdoor space. You know, at, at Gayhurst, we do have planters which grow artichokes and you think, you know, we're in the middle of Hackney. Um, and in summer, we have, you know, a good five, six artichokes grow in our playground. You know, we have cherry tomatoes, we have potatoes, we have carrots, we have beetroot, we have chard. And, you know, you can't get more in a city than Hackney. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think, I think we are starting to look at the spaces that we have within our schools and realize that we actually have a lot of space for growing. But I mean, once, once again, like none of what we're doing with chefs in schools can happen unless, you know, you have an inspirational head teacher. You know, for me, I guess Louise was fundamental, fundamentally part of, you know, the journey at Gayhurst because, you know, it was, uh, you can have a chef that would want to grow cherry tomatoes, you know, on a school premises, but unless the head teacher has, is sharing the same vision, you know, it, it's it's not something that is able to happen. But I guess when we start realizing that, you know, um, it is important for children to understand, you know, that it is sim something as simple as pulling a carrot out of the ground. You know, it, it doesn't have to come into in, in a box, you know, washed and chopped. You know, it can come with soil, you know, out of the ground where you have to watch it, wash it because most probably it's going to have a worm on it, you know, and, and when a head teacher understands that that's actually part of what we need to be teaching kids, then you have success stories and you have spaces in the centre of London that are growing, you know, amazing produce. I think what you're doing is amazing and um thank you I, I really so support it because I think our children if we don't invest in our children what is there to invest on they, they, they I are agree our future and and the I you know health is something I'm so passionate about especially in these early years so I'd really love to acknowledge you for for your work for taking that risk listening to your gut and uh there's a there's a, a funny in there somewhere <laughs> so <laughs> listening to the gut with food very relevant and uh, I, I think it's wonderful what you do how how can we the public support you well just so go onto our website sign up to chefs and scores and any way that you feel that you can give um we will find a way to make sure and it, it could range you know it can range from 
a lot of people just say, how can I help? Can I be part of the cooking lessons? Can I teach kids how to make bread? You know, can I donate whatever I can? So whatever it is that you feel that you can give, we're, we're here to listen. And I always, to be fair, I always joke. I say, if you're going to offer something, make sure that you're 100% um, keen in offering it. Because we do, I, I do call and I do get parents, you know, getting doing bread making classes with kids and yeah any any offers that we've had we're, we're very grateful but yes um and downloading the school food charter that's that's another great way we'll put all the know. all the links in the show notes and seeing as you're far too modest to plug it yourself i will do it for you so nicole's also written a book a lovely recipe thank you called salt butter and bones so thank well, you very and much that's, is I that have, much yes. it's very influenced by your your native cuisine, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Um, and it is the journey of a chef, really, because going, like I said, and um, I always, uh, the book and chefs and schools were being created at the same time. And I always thought that there were two separate identities. But actually, now, uh, five years later, I realized they're part of the same thing because my journey. Uh, in the book is going you know from eating bone marrow as a child and you know later on in in my years realizing that that's not what everybody did (laughs) so now wanting to give that to the kids you know we haven't gone as far as bone marrow but um, now that I am talking about it I think it might be something good to serve Um, but it's that journey that I had as a child um, with with food that I've always felt that you know, it, it was part of my happiness as a child. And that's, I guess, what we try and give kids uh, at school with the food education. So Perfect. Thank, thank you for mentioning the book. <laughs> You're more than welcome. As I said, I think the whole, everything that you do is something that one can only support with heart and soul because it's, it's just such a wonderful thing. Nicole, I'm thank very you. mindful of your time, but I do have three little questions that I always ask all of my guests and I'd love to hear your answers. There's no right or wrong. So London <laughs> Heal, the podcast is all about mind, body, spirit, medicine. And I like to think of that in terms of health, happiness, and serenity. So for you personally, what is your definition of health? What does that word mean to you? Um, The definition of health for me is happiness. I think you can't have one without the other, you know, and I think happiness for me is, you know, walking on the beach or eating, you know, a whole, whole fish with, uh, without a fork and knife. (laughs) (laughs) simple pleasures which are often the most rewarding and the best in life so you kind of answer both questions there at once health and happiness so the last one is serenity we we both live in London probably one of the craziest cities in the world um do you have any specific practices or do you get that in your kitchen perhaps where you kind of manage to get engaged in something get something get into the present moment and just turn down all of that noise that goes on in the head it's funny, funny that you ask, but when I cook, it's my moment of peace. Um, and I think for any chef, when you're actually in the zone and, you know, it, it's a bit, especially when you do service in a restaurant, you know, it, it's a bit like performing a ballet, you know, where all the noise uh, just quiets, uh, all the noise quietens down 
and you know you're j- just in flow and you feel you know it's a moment of peace which uh i i guess if 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 you don't if you if you've never done service then it's very hard to understand but um it's to be fair it's actually a big part well one of the only things that i miss about the restaurant world is having those moments of peace um in in uh, something like you know a, a restaurant full of checks and a screaming head chef for food in three minutes you know you can find moments of peace in in and knowing that you're in flow and that you're in the right place at the right time and you're doing the right thing and i guess that's yeah that's you can find you can have those moments uh in somewhere as crazy as london <laughs> absolutely. absolutely i love that i mean i can't absolutely cannot imagine how one can find peace in a in a busy <laughs> kitchen but i guess that's exactly what you said it's it's when you drop into flow like so many you know, professional athletes and things in an environment which you think would actually be really aggravating. In fact, quite it's sometimes quite the opposite when it's your thing. So I'm very glad that you found your thing. <laughs> and I'm very, very glad that you're paying it forward and helping our future generations. And once more, I acknowledge the work you do. And thank you so much for taking the time. That, and it. thank you for inviting us. It's been an honor to meet you. And uh, thank likewise. you for the last hour. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nicole as much as I did. Isn't the work that she's doing with the whole charity of Chef in Schools absolutely marvellous? Can't emphasise enough, and I'm sure you all agree with me, how vitally important, if we're even going to start the conversation about health and longevity, that, of course, that has to start with our children. And what a marvellous initiative that she's going. Um, please check out the links in the show notes to the Chef in Schools website where you can download this charter and get, in bo- get on board either for your children and your school or even just to contribute because you think it's a wonderful thing to be doing, which I totally would just do. And on that note, if you also found this episode interesting and a full of valuable information which you would like to pass on, because that's another way of getting the information about Chef in Schools out there, is to pass on the podcast. And please, please do that. Um, share shamelessly, as we always say. And of course, please rate and review us on any podcast platform that you listen to, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps us get our message out there. Just wanted to remind you also that if you wanted extended show notes for future episodes of London Heal, then please pop over to our website, which is londonheal.com, and sign up, and then you will receive a newsletter with the links to the newest episode as soon as an episode is published and made available, and of course, all of the extended show notes. And if you were listening to our episode of the week, will know that all the recent episodes, about six now, I think, of London Heal are in fact searchable, which is very cool. So if you go over to the website, londonheal.com, and have a look at the episode page, if there's a little box at the bottom that says search here, or a little um, link, then you can actually search the audio content of the podcast. So you can effectively Google podcast i think that's really cool love to know what you're thinking about that and testing it out please let us know and so my dear listeners until 
next week and next time, that leaves me as always to wish you health, happiness and serenity. <laughs>